Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is John Avalon. Mr. Avalon is editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast and is a CNN political analyst. His book, Wingnuts, How the Lunatic Fringe is Hijacking America, was praised by President Bill Clinton as providing a clear and comprehensive review of the forces on the outer edges of the political spectrum that shape and distort our political debate. Mr. Avalon discussed his newest book, Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations, at a Ford Evening Book Talk on February 1, 2017. And in this episode, you'll hear select audio from that discussion. Really great. I hope not at the top of my game yet, but oh I appreciate my. it. It's, there's better things to come. Well, that's uh, that's 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 great. Um, well, I, I I really enjoyed that. I've really enjoyed the book. Um, you know, like you, I was recently out in California. I visited the Reagan Library, actually, great place. the Nixon Library. Um, they're doing some interesting things there. But I I was on a, a panel with Mara Eliasson at uh, USC uh, Saul Price School, where Mount Vernon has an, uh, a Washington theme lecture. Oh, and she was also laying heavily on this notion of civic education, of, of first principles, of getting back to civic ideals. And I was struck, we had a great audience about this size there, and I was showing off you know, George Washington's copy of the Acts of Congress, and, and he was waving it around like uh, Moses with the, uh, you know, with the <laughs> Ten Commandments. I like the Old Testament line. It's an appropriate line. comparison, <laughs> sure. And, and, um, yeah, but they were locked in. I mean, people really feel like are really hungry to... Um, to learn about, again, about the uh, Washington story that I think a lot of people don't know, uh, which sounds so absurd, because Washington is such a huge figure, but is that what you're finding as you travel around, that they're sort of rediscovering Washington? I, I do. I think there's a, a thirst right now yeah. to find firm footing, you know? I, I do think that at a time of change and uncertainty, people want to um, root their feelings, their opinions, their optimism in First principles and something solid, something time-honored wisdom that we've been given. And it's there for us to discover if we just make the effort. Um, but I do think that there is, a, there is a desire for that now. I think there's a need for that now. I think there's a hunger for that now. And so that itself creates an opportunity. Because I think folks appreciate that however divided we are, we've been in more difficult places in the past. We'll get through this. That's one of the things history provides, is a sense of perspective, a sense of comfort, a sense of courage. But um, I, I do think there's a real need to, to, to repair to the Founding Fathers just for a sense of perspective, and then I think rededicate ourselves to the business of self-government. I, I think we underestimate as citizens the responsibility that is, um, and I don't think we can do it anymore. I, I really love your ringing endorsement of a an aggressive moderation or the power of moderation as an, an ideal. However, uh, I think it's, um, it's a real challenge. Uh, for a lot of Americans, we have a revolutionary tradition as well mm -hmm. as a tradition of, of compromise. And so uh, 
you know, if, I think in, right now there's a lot of rhetoric, and Washington recognizes this in, in the farewell address, that you know, political differences, you can, uh, you can start believing that your opponents are your enemies and that they represent something alien to what is in your tradition. You know? And yeah. so you should fight against that, shouldn't you? I mean, how can you compromise with someone who's going to overturn <coughs> yeah, your Yeah, that's way of a life? fundamental misreading of American history certainly of Washington's advice. I mean, his whole point was, um, the, the revolution's over. Now the real work begins. You know, the revolutionary spirit is about kicking out colonists who had nothing to do with our country and our daily lives. And there are things we can learn from that struggle, sure. I don't think it's, I think it's a mistake to forget that the Revolutionary War began in part as a tax protest, that those emotions <laughs> run deep and should be understood and appreciated. But um, Washington would also say that, look, there are no taxes that cannot be more or less unpleasant, but that's what we need to do to pay off our debts so we don't pass that on to the next generation. There needs to be a sense of generational responsibility. There are no aliens among us, just Americans. And, and, and the moment we start believing that our, our, our neighbors, um, that we, we start doubting in the basic goodwill, uh, the civic structure starts eroding. And look, Washington was in pain at the fight between Jefferson and Hamilton. I mean, he saw his two most talented surrogates funds fighting, and he wrote a series of letters trying to convince them to just assume a little bit of goodwill on each other's part. And they hated each other's guts. It wasn't terribly successful. But, <laughs> but I think that's, you know, too often, I think partisans today cite the founding fathers as a way of excusing whatever the extremes on their own sides do. They say, well, you should have seen the election of 1800. I mean, you know, John Adams got called a hermaphrodite. <laughs> and, um, well, yeah, that's true. But, um, you know. I knew you were going to use that word. Did you? Did it, was that, does that, do we have a bingo? Did anybody win anything? Um, I think that the return on that would be high. But, um, but I mean, I, I think the, the, the point is, though, that Adams and Jefferson all look back on that with a degree of regret. Fairly quickly, in 1797, Jefferson writes a letter when he's vice president just a year after the farewell address, and he talks about how men that used to speak to each other now cross the street in order to avoid yeah. saying hello. Yeah. And he does it in a despairing way. Yeah. So that's nothing to aspire to. That's something right. to learn from. Yeah. Yeah, that, that example, I always think of that example, too, because nowadays we're, we're on the social media feeds, right, and we got our Facebook We're feeds, on the Twitters. Yeah. And I've got my good old boy friends from Southern Virginia, where I grew up, uh -huh. and then I've got all my academic friends from you know, from the history departments all over, you know, and they, they live in two different planets from what I concern. I mean, they really are speaking a different language. And it always reminds me of that Jefferson quote where people walk across the street mm -hmm. when they see other people coming. And, uh, well, I, you, you know, know, it's amazing. It is amazing. It, but, you know, I, I think, again, it's not red states, blue states. It's urban versus rural. This is as old as the fights over the ratifying the Constitution. And both sides think they're fighting for freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what I think, you know, before we start thinking it's something, you know, unprecedented in American history, but, but of course we also got to keep in mind that there was a civil war in this country and 600,000 people died, so we don't need to do that again. Um, and, 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 but, you know, I think there are real differences between rural and urban America, but we have to try to bridge them. And that's what Washington consciously, constantly tried to do, and we do too. All right, so I'm going to get to y'all's questions. I promised I would. Uh, I could go on, but I will not. I will, I will represent. We'll, we'll, we'll do it over a beer sometime. Yeah, exactly. All right, so. <clears throat> uh, absent political parties, 
What would you think was Washington's vision of a mechanism of how subsequent presidents would be selected? Well, I mean, there were still, I mean, this is, this is actually an important kind of hobby horse of mine that I hit. I, I did the Bill Maher show on Friday, and I, I, I mentioned this because it's important. The, the, the Constitution doesn't mention political parties. It does mention journalists, I, I will say, but it doesn't mention political parties. Mm. Um, the answer is in part that the founding fathers thought that the checks and balances between the judicial, the legislative, and the executive would be sufficient. That people would represent their constituents' interests, they would represent their own conscience, but that would be the basic check and divide. Now, again, Washington, towards the end of his two terms, realized that maybe that was a little naive, but people still voted, you know, and there was still the electoral college, yes. Um, but, but, you know, parties were not seen as a positive good, let alone the purpose of our politics, which they, they seem to have been mistaken for now. They're not, and the Founding Fathers all were deeply suspicious of them at different times, Washington consistently. So, I mean, maybe this speaks to some of the work you're doing with the No Labels group, but uh, continuing on that point, uh, George McBride asks, parties have been institutionalized, the state and federal government. Most effective local governments are not by party. Correct. What can be done to lessen parties at state and federal levels? Look, t t two, two big things that are practical and, and one even bigger thing that's just about thinking differently. Um, you know, the, the polarization, you point out, and I, I started working in government um, in New York City Hall. Uh, New York does not have nonpartisan elections, but over 80% of American cities do. And I think that speaks to the fact that Fiero LaGuardia once said, the mayor of New York in the 1930s, there's no Democrat or Republican way to clean the streets. Uh, they're mm -hmm. practical responsibilities, and you need to find a way to bring people together. Um, it's only Washington that this stuff gets fetishized uh, to, to this degree, and that's kind of fundamentally unhelpful. Um, I think you change the rules, you change the game. I think, you know, you really want to change th the culture right now. You have to change the incentives. That means two things. Um, you need to stop the rigged system of redistricting, which basically means that, you know, there are only 35 members of Congress with competitive general elections. So what does that mean? That means that the only way they're ever going to lose lifetime employment is uh, you know, if they get indicted, die, or lose a closed partisan primary where the average turnout is 6%. So they have no incentive structure to read outside in the aisle in our current environment. As a matter of fact, if they reach outside the aisle, even if they know it's the right thing to do, they think they'll be making themselves politically vulnerable. That's deeply screwed up for democracy. Um, so redistricting reform and then open primaries because 45% you know, of Americans identify as independent, but they're locked out from the system, um, despite the fact that you know, the, the two parties are using taxpayer dollars. If you change those two things, then you, you, you change a lot of it. Um, but it's also about people refusing to buy in, saying, well, you got to join the party. Well, there are countries where you do that, and America hasn't historically been one of them. We've got to remember country over party again and start supporting not people because they're a member of the political party, but because they make the most sense. All right. A little less weighty. Apart from the wild hair... This is fun and, for me, which and, is sad. And, uh, apart from the wild hair and wooden teeth, what would you say are the other similarities between George Washington and Donald Trump? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, I, I don't think Washington had wild hair. I don't know if he no, I don't. Hair. I don't think he did. He although, was very uh, he was groomed. Although was wigs very, are still something that I'm a bit. Was everyone secretly bald under there? Washington was Adams, I guess, didn't. Um, uh, well, yeah, and, and to be fair, I mean, Donald, uh, Donald Trump, as far as I know, has most of his own teeth, and poor George was down to one towards the end. Um, but, um, 
You know, it's a great question because I could sit here for a long time and think about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, George Washington uh, was a soldier. Uh, he was a uh, largely self-made man. Um, he read a lot. Um, he devoted his life to public service. Um, he did. 50 years of public service in war and peace. Um, they both were interested in business. Yeah, they both were developers. They were, uh, yeah. Washington uh, yeah. had businesses while he was president. And, and it was uh, fast. And, and really, you know, Washington's enthusiasm for canals, the canal system and interstate commerce between the war and his mm -hmm. presidency is really fascinating. And, and it's sort of an entrepreneurial story, and there's a lot to learn from. And he really did believe in the power of business, even if you want to need to put checks on it. But, um, you know, I, I think yeah. the legacy of service is starkly different, isn't it? All right, so how would you go about this, quote, civic education in a timely <laughs> fashion? This crazy it's idea a, yeah. about honoring our is past. Is it a series of town meetings, of lectures, discussions? How do we get real citizens who don't and can't go in for I, I'm not things. suggesting re-education camps. All I'm <laughs> suggesting <laughs> is that uh, perhaps we should start uh, elevating and honoring our shared past again. You know, someone said to me the other day, no one watched the Super Bowl if no one knew the rules. You know, we have to just start inculcating basic civics about how our government works, about how our country's history, so we have a common currency of communication and a sense of responsibility to that process. It is not a given, right? When the, when the Romans wanted to make people, you know, dumb, they, they got bread and circuses. That's just another way of amusing yourself to death. If they're not involved in politics and civics, then the republic dies. But, you know, give them bread and circuses and maybe they won't care. Um, you know, that is not terribly unanalogous. You know, when more people vote for American Idol than for an American president, we got a problem. And, um, and, and so we just need to start elevating it again, beginning in our own homes, start, you know, actually donating to causes and organizations. Mount that Vernon. Advantage. Mount Vernon. <laughs> Your, 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 your National Presidential Library, but absolutely and seriously. Yeah, because we do these kinds of programs yeah. all over the country. Uh, we help teachers teach the founding era, uh, you know, not only in mm -hmm. the story of George Washington, but our civic education and partners like iCivics and, you know, all these other organizations that are out there trying but to here, break yeah. through the noise absolutely. and help. You know, and, but, so. and, and, you know, and, and look, you know, cities and states should help, but ultimately it's on us. Here's a modest proposal. Why shouldn't every high school graduate have to pass the same civics test that a new American immigrant does? That seems like a basic fair bottom line. Let's start there. So we're streaming this live on Facebook. And so all of you on Facebook and you're following the Mount Vernon Facebook page, there'll be tens of thousands of you out there. Make sure you friend the library as well. And I got a question here that came down from Facebook. John Finzel. And the Daily Beast, by the way, while yeah. you're at it. Thank yeah. you. Okay, the Daily Beast. Uh, would Washington have been an independent, a Republican, or a Democrat? Independent. That should be an easy one, yeah. Easy. Done. Already established. It was a great question, though, Facebook. Thank you for sending that along. All right. Um, so how, Let's see. Okay, so what is your favorite myth, meaning a, a story that can't be verified about George Washington uh, that you discovered and you were like, oh, I want to include this. I, maybe I will include it, but I'm not sure if it's absolutely 100% true. Oh, God, that's a really great question. Um, certainly wouldn't be the cherry tree. That's not terribly interesting. Um, you know, <laughs> I, um, I was really fascinated. 
in, and this is something I think Mount Vernon does really well. We do ourselves a disservice when we put the founding fathers on a pedestal because we make their wisdom much less accessible. And it's much more interesting to realize that they were flawed humans in a full 360. And Washington in the farewell dress is a man in full. He is thin-skinned, he is angry, he is intemperate. His early drafts, he's going off on the press and the unfairness of it all, some things never change. Um, and, um, and it's really interesting. But the diaries of William McCauley, the Pennsylvania senator, mm -hmm. are really fascinating. And there's one thing, because I like showing Washington and the founders like what they ate and drank. And by the way, they drank a lot of Madeira, mm -hmm. like pints of Madeira. Um, the water was dangerous. Yes, uh, and they were drunk, I mean, or something, or, or not. But, uh, but there's a great scene not having to do with Washington uh, drinking, although I was, I was touched when he was in small groups, he apparently really did loosen up and love a good yeah, joke. Yeah. Um, I think, um, too, uh, well, there's a great anecdote about he's, in, he's, uh, he's at a formal dinner in uh, the executive mansion in New York City, which was torn down to make way for the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and, uh, and, and Macaulay, the uh, senator, kind of dismissively says, he's always drumming on the table with his, uh, his silverware. But I find that just such an odd, odd image. Um, and then there's a great story about Governor Morris uh, and Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton uh, bets Governor Morris that he can't go up and show kind of easy familiarity with Washington, put, put her arm around him at a party. So Governor Morris says, you're, you're on, and he hobbles over to Washington, and he puts his arm around him and says, my general, it's so, so good to see you looking so well. And Washington apparently just stared at him like he was this, like, reptile. And he, <laughs> and he, he slunked off, and Hamilton won the bet. And that is probably not a true story. That's but a good that, one. You know, that is a good one. And, I, and I've heard it from the, from the podium at, at Mount Vernon many, many times, and, and it's a great one to tell, but possibly, most likely, not true. All right, so a uh, little fake news from the 18th century exactly. there. Too good to check. Uh, yeah. Um, was the day George Washington left office and John Adams became president the greatest day in American history? Huh. Um, I'm not going to say greatest. Uh, I would even say that the succession between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson was greater because that's the peaceful transfer of power between opposing parties. Um, but certainly George Washington was happy about it. <laughs> he was thrilled. Yeah. Probably his best day, maybe second best day. Okay. Um, why have we deviated so much from first principles? Well, I mean... Or have we? Or have we always been on the edge of failure? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, I think... Um, I guess as Ronald Reagan said, you know, we're always one generation away hmm. from freedom becoming extinct now. Um, I mean, Americans have failed, as he pointed out. I mean, yeah. they had the big civil war. I mean, that was a thing. Yeah, Washington yeah. failed a lot, and, and, he, and, he, and he came back from it. Um, I think it helped that he didn't lust for power. I think his modesty assured his greatness. Um, but um, I, 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 look, we have decades and generations, and, you know, Washington couldn't have imagined the technological changes that, you know, changed his assumptions about our ability to keep distant from other parts of the world. Um, but I think the memory of first principles, especially with something like the farewell, which is intended to be something that we can repair to, that we can hold up to guide us when we're trying to make decisions, which it did for a long time. It's not a surprise that things change. The effort to keep first principles alive as a frame of reference, that's, the, the, that's something that takes tending. Right? I mean, you know, of course we're going to drift from first principles. Just keeping them alive in, in the memory and conversation, that's just part of our job as citizens, but it is part of our job. Yeah. 
Now here's a good question. Uh, in the run-up to the last election, I was struck by the fact that we lacked a candidate to emerge in the mold of George Washington. Why do you think that we seem to end up with candidates who devolve to the, quote, lowest common denominator of partisanship? What can be done to encourage more candidates to emulate the model of Washington? And, and it has to be said, and I, I know there's a lot of people who loved both candidates in this room, a lot of people I know who loved both candidates, but these two candidates were the you most... You were among a minority, apparently. Yeah, I mean, they were the most unliked yes. of any candidates in modern memory. No, they, so they, so yeah. that's my addition yeah, to that they, question. They, they, they both were were underwater approval ratings. I think Donald Trump's disapproval was 61% on election day, which is extraordinary. Um, look, I, the standard of George Washington, I mean, this is something historically unique. I mean, at the Constitutional Convention, um, I think 45 or 42 people had served under him. Um, I mean, he had an aura of command that is not, was not easily transferable even to the other members of the founding generation because of his stature uh, as a general. Um, uh, who, who led the revolution. That's something that's highly unique. That's not something that's terribly transferable. What is transferable is his focus on character, his focus on enduring values. You know, the, the quote I chose to begin the book with is Jefferson writing about Washington, where he says something to the effect of, um, the virtue and moderation of a single character probably prevented this revolution from, uh, be, uh, from becoming, as most other haves, of uh, subverting the liberty it was intended to establish. Virtue and moderation. These are not things we tend to celebrate enough today in our political leaders. But it's up to us to elevate them. You know, I mean, uh, right now, virtue and moderation will get you screaming in a phone booth alone off I-95. So, yeah, well, it won't that, give you many ratings either. No, I mean, that's the point. You know, if, if, if we... The if virtuous we, housewives of Beverly Hills. Right. Well, exactly. Uh, that's, so, but, that's exciting. But that's a sad thing. And, <laughs> and, and that, you know, it's not actually entertainment. It's self-governance. And so we have to, you know, elevate people um, who are trying to aspire to a higher standard, a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. Uh, if we don't do that, that's on us. All right, here's a great question, and you do go into this in your book a little bit. If George Washington was uh, not president, would he have supported All Lives Matter? He did own slaves. Jeez. I, you know, th the thing about some highly specific what would Washington say about questions is, you know, what would Washington say if he was here today? Wow, look at all the buildings. You filled the continent? What's that iron bird? I mean, you know, I mean, there's certain, you know. Um, I, I, I have no idea uh, what Washington would say about Black Lives Matter. I will say that, that Washington's history with slavery is vitally important to study and understand um, with unvarnished eyes. Um, it is a, a core contradiction. I interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda, the guy who played Hamilton, and wrote it for the book. And he talks about how, you know, they embrace, you have to embrace the contradiction. Here's a, a guy singing beautifully about freedom, but who owned human beings. Have to embrace that contradiction. I think it's also important that we cannot take contemporary standards and project them on the past. Um, and, and, and so you need to walk that line. Um, you know, um, I, I'd also think it's interesting that, that if you really study Washington's torturous history with slaves, um, there are notable exceptions, but he says to Edmund Randolph, you know, if there's a civil war, I'm going with the North. Um, he, 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 he was sort of a captive to the cruel economy of slavery in his own way. And while he did release his slaves upon his deathbed, which is sort of an easy time to do it, um, um, you know, the nine subsequent presidents who owned slaves 
many of them purchased slaves while they were president. They sold slaves while they were president. They didn't release them after he died. And Washington was consciously trying to send a message through the power of his example with that final act. Uh, it's a great uh, question and a great answer. And I would encourage you to check out our exhibit on slavery at Mount Vernon yep. to help you understand more about the reality of the institution and the, the challenges to it that Washington faced. You know, and uh, it's, it's extremely important. Uh, I haven't read this one, so this could be crazy. Good, this is fun. Then. <clears throat> Sally, Sally, uh, what what are your thoughts on a sort of GI Bill for those who did not get to slash not go to college and get degrees? Well, I mean, the GI Bill um, was obviously for returning soldiers after World War II, um, and um, and 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 beyond slightly. I, I do think that. Uh, and we often do pay the education of returning soldiers, but that should be certainly standard. I, I think maybe there's a deeper question, which is how do we um, inculcate uh, public service again? And, and, and I think that is a more interesting and larger conversation because we've got too small a percentage serving in the military. And, and you know maybe there's a way of diversifying the obligation for public service. So you can have that kind of factor where it brings people together from disparate backgrounds to reinforce that you know there's more than unites us and what divides us, which is part of what the draft did. Absolutely. And maybe maybe that should be a choice between AmeriCorps, working in a national park, or military service, or, or some other form of service. But that, I think, it, it, that's probably necessary. Well, and it speaks to what Washington wanted with that national university. That's right. He had pie in the sky exactly. idea is that you've got a diverse country. People majority speak German, and are a third of the country, third of the people in Pennsylvania speak German, and, and all these other things, and, and all the different sections. And you need to bring people together to learn about their similarities. And so, how are we doing that today? Are we doing a really good job? Uh, we celebrate diversity quite a bit, but do we celebrate what we share enough? Do we ask people to figure out what they share rather than what makes them distinct enough? Uh, you know that that I think is uh, is a real challenge. I mean, yeah, we're one of the largest democracies in the world, and the world has ever seen. Uh, certainly, one of the most open in, uh, in terms of what, what we can talk about freely. And uh, it, you know, we're not just going to all of a sudden recognize our commonalities. No, but and I think that's that's a cultural responsibility. But I mean, you know, politics can help change a culture and save it from itself. I mean, the two are entwined. Um, that was a Daniel Patrick Moynihan line. I should give him credit for that. Um, Unbelievable. But theft. Theft. Uh, but, but I do think, you know, we, we do need to culturally and politically emphasize the idea that there's more than unites us than divides us. We need to celebrate that. And that's the idea of unity and diversity. That's the idea of pluralism as actually a, a bulwark against extremism, you know. Um, th th that is our ultimate source of strength as a nation because we're the only nation in the world not founded upon a tribal identity. We're founded upon an idea and an ideal. And, and as long as we stay true to that, then we'll be all right. We drift from that, and then we got a problem. We're all Washingtonians here. We're all right? Washingtonians Thank here. Thank you, John Avalon. Thank you very Fantastic. much. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.